this week on the Backtable Podcast. In the office, whether that's, you know, standard surveillance, initial diagnosis, or are relatively simple moves. And I may ask you, you know, from your perspective as, as well, what you do in our clinic, um, you know, of course they all get the uh, lidocaine jelly instilled. Then when I'm at the sphincter and about to go through the sphincter on the prostate, I'll ask the patients to take a deep breath, relax, act like they're urinating. And then I'll have the assistant actually squeeze the um, irrigant bed to kind of passively dilate the, the sphincter and the prostate as well. There's actually data that patients do better in terms of tolerating their, their office cystoscopies. And, and again, these are going to be super simple things to implement, you know, really trying to keep that, that lumen visualized actually as you're going through the prostate and not just kind of pass it in blindly as a catheter. Welcome to Urology Back Table. I'm Ocho Silva. I'm a urologist in Sunstone, Florida. And today we're going to have a guest, Dr. Didi Bagrodia, like I said, better known as Didi. He has, he's a uro, urology oncologist down at UT Southwestern. He did medical school in Tennessee. And then he did residency UT, UT Southwestern. Then went for a fellowship in Memorial Centering. And now he's an attending at UT Southwestern. So Didi, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me today, Oche. Really appreciate the invite. And you said you're in the, your office? Yep. Yep. Spent a little time in the office, knock out some work. What do you have in your background? You, you, you write in the, on your walls? Yeah, those are the uh, research projects uh, that are in various stages of completion. So, um, you know, when they pop up, they, they tend to go kind of quickly. So I try to get them down on my dry erase wall back there. That's great. That's great. So Didi, you did a fellowship in cancer in, in oncology. What made you go into a fellowship in the first place? Uh, rather than just going straight to 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 work, sure, yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think some something that everybody needs to kind of individually identify the, for themselves. You know, fortunately, I think as urologists, cancer is part and part soul of what we do on the day to day, and and I would say for most uh, U.S. residents, getting exposure to prostate cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer is is an expectation of most residencies. Some of the rare tumors, um, penile cancer, testis cancer, urethral cancer, upper tract cancer, you may not have that much exposure. I felt pretty fortunate, you know, being in Dallas, uh, large volume center, that the clinical fundamentals were there. But certainly, I think if you really want to be involved in understanding some of the biology, pathophysiology, really keeping your finger on the pulse in terms of multimodal management, and really what's coming through the pipelines in terms of next steps, fellowship could be a good option. And whether you ultimately decide to go into academics or private practice, you know, having that additional training, I think is, uh, is valuable. Okay. And what make you go into academics? Do you want to go into academics prior to the fellowship? I mean, is that something that you had in mind when you started all this process? Absolutely. Okay. I, I think I decided fairly early on that I, I liked the research aspect of it. I liked the teaching part of it. I liked that thought that, you know, through an academic path, I would be able to focus on oncology only. So that was certainly my kind of plan going into it. You know, with that being said, I know plenty of people go into fellowships and go into practice. And, and I'd like to think that there's still value in that uh, route as well. Okay. So, yeah, so, Didi, so today we're going to talk about bladder cancer. 
in your practice, do you, do you see a bunch of bladder cancer? What, what's the most that you see down there in UT Southwestern? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's obviously one of the big four kidney, prostate, bladder, testis, and um, we, we do see quite a bit in various stages. We take care of patients at both the safety net hospital, a VA hospital, and then a academic tertiary referral center. So each of those populations, I would say, you know, especially with the baby boomer population, being here in Texas, a lot of folks smoke, unfortunately. In my practice, I, I would say that I see about four or five patients, any given clinic with bladder cancer and anywhere from about four to six cystectomies a month. Yeah. So that's a big volume. So I wanted to start with, with just the basics. First, when, when you start in the process of diagnosing that patient with a, with a bladder cancer, the, the patient either starts uh, with hematuria, you do a cystoscopy. So what, what's the next step? Sure. And, um, you know, even before that, I, I think it's mandatory to review the imaging yourself if it's been done. You know, oftentimes our patients are referred. And if they've got a clear-cut tumor in the bladder, oftentimes I'll just kind of save them the whole experience of an office cystoscopy and go straight to the OR. I think that's a uh, decision that you make on the front end. And with respect to office cystoscopy, you know, really looking at the um, level of suspicion, looking at the imaging, and certainly looking at patient comorbidities, many times I think it's a good option to actually perform a flexible cystoscopy with biopsy fulguration in the clinic. If you can save some of these elderly patients with significant comorbidities and anesthetic, I think that that's a very, very nice. And also with respect to office cystoscopy, if you have the capabilities to do any type of augmented enhanced cystoscopy, whether that's NBI using Olympus infrastructure or whether that's using blue light enhancement with the Carl Stortz infrastructure, I think those can be nice options. They are in the guidelines. I wouldn't say it's mandatory, but, you know, going back to your initial question. So, you know, you've got a suspicion for a tumor, whether based on office cysto or whether based on your preoperative imaging, you know, the next steps are going to be taken into the operating room, establishing a uh, tissue diagnosis. And I actually like to get a cytology just so I have a sense of what I'm kind of, you know, getting into what I'm working with. If it's high grade, that may impact my decision to use any type of post-operative intravesical therapy. So, you know, we've, we've gotten to the operating room. I always counsel my patients for a transurethral sectional bladder tumor along with positive post-op, possible post-operative installation of a chemotherapeutic. I personally would uh, go with gemcitabine over mitomycin routinely. It's uh, cheaper. It's got a better side effect profile and oftentimes the uh, issues with calcification that you see with mitomycin are essentially non-existent with gemcitabine. So in, in the operating room, you know, of course, we're the kind of captains of the ship there. And I think it's uh, important that, that you are in contact with your anesthesiologist. If it's a lateral tumor, a posterior tumor, that you do have the capability to um, have the patient paralyzed, you know, checking the arrogant, whether you're doing, using monopolar or bipolar. This is just kind of my preference. I will typically still do monopolar. I think bipolar is a, a perfectly fine option. Certainly if you have a larger tumor, I think it could be a good option to use a bipolar technology. So I also will try not to hang the fluids overly high. While that does help out with uh, visibility, I do think you can under, over distend the bladder and put yourself at a slightly higher risk of a perforation. 
Then uh, jumping on into it, you know, as soon as the patient's prepped and uh, draped and the timeouts perform, I'll put in 26 or 28 French sound into the meatus just to kind of passively dilate the fossa. I think this is nice for, you know, accommodation of the resectoscope and um, as well as kind of mitigating any issues or problems with postoperative strictures. If I am fairly confident that there's a tumor, I will oftentimes just go in with the 26 French resectoscope visual optrator and skip the kind of standard rigid cystoscopy with the 21 French 30 degree lens. Now, as soon as you get in, you know, I think you're trying to get information from time point zero. What does the urethra look like? What does the prostate look like in terms of, are there any masses, lesions, anything suspicious, obstructing lateral lobes? Are you, are you potentially going to be running into issues with postoperative retention? So, you know, careful look at the prostate and, and again, a second careful look at the prostate when you come back out, then, um, you know, I will oftentimes go ahead and switch out from my visual optrator to a resectoscope. If I know that there's going to be a large tumor that I'm hundred percent going to be resecting, you get better inflow outflow, better visibility. First thing of course, is just to take a systematic look around the bladder. I think everybody's kind of got their rhythm to make sure that you're visualizing all your critical elements, including the ureteral orifices, the trigum. And if you can't get a good look at the entirety of the bladder neck with the 30 degree lens, I would say it's hundred percent worthwhile to spend the extra 30 seconds to put in a seven degree lens and really investigate that bladder neck. Once you you've got an assessment of the entirety of the bladder, then I, I think it's time to begin the resection. So for, for, I mean, for a simple resection, a small tumor, you would just straight up resected, how, how far or how deep do you go into that uh, muscle or, or, or bladder tissue? Yeah. And oftentimes it is these smaller tumors, half a centimeter, one centimeter, which I think can be challenging. You know, if you go with your sectoscope and um, you've engaged your resectoscope a little too quickly, the bladder's undistended. Next thing you know, you've kind of cauterized the tumor. You've annihilated your ability to get a pathological diagnosis. Yeah. So something I certainly kind of iterate and reiterate to the residents is, you know, especially for these smaller tumors, you want to be, you want to be careful and you want to give the pathologist something to work with. So what I will do is actually get the, the bladder decently distended. When it's under distended, I think to actually get your loop within the bladder wall can be difficult. And I'll generally start about, you know, two to five millimeters beyond the tumor, engage my loop, get it into the wall. And then I use a stutter step technique, resecting towards myself, trying to get under the tumor, sample muscle. And I, and I, realize that I may be overly dogmatic about this. I want to know, you know, is the muscle sampled both visually and then, you know, of course, by the pathologist, but I'm trying to get under the tumor and almost to an in block resection for very small tumors. I think that this gives the pathologist something to work with. It minimizes cautery artifact. You can, you know, feel good that you've completely resected the tumor. So in general, I am at least getting through the lamina propria. I want to have muscle. And, you know, beyond that, if it's a low grade papillary solitary tumor, I'm not trying to resect down to fat or anything beyond that. Okay. Okay. And do you usually get a cold cup biopsy of that base or, or that area where, where, where you just resect it? I mean, if you, for, for bladders that are thinner, that you don't want to go in that deep, what, what's your, your process with those? Yeah, I think uh, a cold cup is, is a great option. You know, of course, there's tumor location, tumor high at the dome can often be difficult to resect. I think you're at a higher likelihood of just cauterizing the entirety of the tumor. 
if it's a small tumor, certainly elderly females, or you're suspicious of a thinner bladder wall, I think a cold cup biopsy with fulguration can be a complete resection. Of course, you can take multiple bites in the same area. And uh, so I would absolutely say that that should be something that you use in your armamentarium. Clearly, there's not going to be any cautery artifact. I always tell the residents if there's multiple tumors, it may sound obvious, but if you take several cold cups, you need to keep track of how many cold cups, where you took them, and make sure that you cauterize and get hemostasis at all of those. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And, and for, for larger tumors, that tumors that you go in, you're seeing it from the bladder neck, you see that it's encasing the entire bladder. What, what's your next step? I mean, do you try to completely uh, remove them? That will leave a, a possible uh, non-functional bladder. So, I mean, do you, or you just go to uh, try to get some samples, try to get tissue samples, pathology, and then go straight for the cystectomy. Sure, sure. So I think this is, um, you know, one of those things that people struggle with all the time. And um, once we answer this, I think it'd be nice to come back and revisit using blue light enhanced cystoscopy. So based on what you're describing, my suspicion for this being a muscle invasive bladder cancer is going to be high. And, uh, you know, first things first, looking at patient comorbidity, looking at the clinical picture, are they having glossy material with clots, et cetera. If it's a very large tumor, sick patient, clearly muscle invasive, hydronephrosis, you know, extension beyond the fat. A lot of this is going to depend on the relationship with your medical oncologist as well. You know, if I've got a tumor like that, I would almost say that I would be fine doing an office cystoscopy obtaining a cytology, getting a biopsy, because I don't want to run into any operative misadventures, persistent grossing material, bladder perforation, something that could be a catastrophe. If I know it's locally advanced, clearly, you know, T2 through T4, our medical oncologists here, I think are, are very, very into being aggressive with multimodal therapy. So in a patient like that, I, I would have, that's sick, I would have a very low threshold to, you know, try to go with the less is more philosophy. The other half of this is, you know, de determining resectability. We know that patients that are ultimately pathological T0 after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and cystectomy or after cystectomy alone do better. So if you can safely get it out, you know, if it's, if it's in an area that's amenable to a complete resection, you don't think you're going to put the patient at a risk for, for a perforation or anything along those lines. I do like to completely resect both for, you know, increase the chance of them ultimately being pathological T0. And then also just to make sure that if they're going to be receiving chemotherapy, that we don't run into issues with recurrent hematuria. Okay. And, and in terms of the technique, I mean, when you did a fellowship, do you had any difference from what you learned in residency in terms of the pure uh, surgical technique? Yeah, so I feel like in, in my residency, I was fortunate that most of our oncologists, actually all of our oncologists were fellowship trained at, okay. um, you know, reputable prestigious center. So I, I felt like we got a, a really nice kind of state-of-the-art training. One of the areas that was a little bit more aggressive in terms of resection, this is kind of straightforward from the Harry Herr School of Thought, would be radical resection of carcinoma in situ. That was something that in residency, if you're suspicion that they had diffuse carcinoma in situ, oftentimes we would just make sure we're establishing a diagnosis with, you know, multiple cold cups or, you know, several swipes, get your hemostasis and get out. And in residency, there was much more, excuse me, in fellowship, there was much more an emphasis on complete resection of all visible disease. 
So that was uh, something that's nuanced. You know, coming back full circle, when I came back to T Southwestern as an attending, our institution was one of the first early adopters of blue light enhanced cystoscopy. So, you know, really making sure that we're trying to resect not only the tumor, but anything that looks like peritumoral dysplasia or carcinoma in situ. So in, in a lot of ways, I think those are kind of merging, but this idea of a, of a deep radical resection, understanding that you may have, you know, perforations into the fat and that kind of happens part and parcel of, of radical TUR was a notion that I would say was a little bit more emphasized in fellowship. And you have mentioned the blue light cystoscopy. I mean, do you have blue light both in the office and in the OR or just in the OR? Yeah, we have, we have it for both. Mm -hmm. For both. Okay. And has that changed or let's say, let's put it this way. Has that make you take more patients to the OR because you see something more suspicious with the blue light? Has, have you been able to diagnose more patients with that technique? Yeah, so it, it's a great question. And uh, honestly, I would say in my clinical practice, and I think the field in general, there's been this kind of parallel emergence of, of flexible office blue light cystoscopy and just a increased adoption of office-based biopsy fulguration. So I would say that I'm diagnosing more suspicious lesions and at the same time biopsying those in the clinic with the idea being that many times these are going to be early dysplastic low-grade lesions or they're going to be carcinoma in situ. And, you know, as we, as we know, one of the, one of the trickiest, cha most challenging bits of this is to sort out BCG changes from tumor recurrence. So net, I would say that I actually end up taking a lot less patients to the operating room. And, um, and that's going to be, it's a little hard to parse out what's, the contribution of blue light cystoscopy and what's the implementation of more office-based biopsy. And, and, you know, for, for those of you that maybe don't do office-based biopsy, I must say it, it's really, really actually quite simple to implement. You know, whether you do blue light or not, you know, putting in a catheter, a solution of, uh, of a local anesthetic, plus some saline, letting it dwell for 20, 30 minutes. And to be perfectly frank, even if you use like lidocaine gel, Patients tolerate these very, very well. Uniformly, it's preferred versus, you know, general anesthesia, the whole kind of experience of coming in two hours early, general anesthesia, making sure you avoid X, Y, and Z. It takes it from being, you know, a half day affair with two or three days of lingering effects to, you know, literally a 15 minute procedure. So I would, uh, you know, there's plenty of great, uh, information in terms of implementing an office-based biopsy program. You buy a little generator, get a, get a flexible cold cup biopsy forcept and, you know, a bug bee and you're, and you're home free. So that's something I would, I would say it may sound intimidating, but uh, it's actually quite, quite easy to implement. So, so for file, for surveillance cystoscopies after the BCG, you start doing the, the, the cold cup biopsy of that base or whether the scar tissue, you do that in the office? No, I haven't, I haven't gone that far. You know, office biopsies, I think have a role, but it's not, it's not the same. You know, I would, I would liken it to, it's better than trying to biopsy a lesion in the upper tract, but it's not the same as a rigid cold cup biopsy where you're, you know, when you're, when you're doing a second look resection, staging, biopsy, et cetera, you really need to make sure that you have that muscle sampled. And, Okay. And, and the tools are just not quite as, as 
amenable to that with with the flexible setup as they are to the rigid. So I I will still do my second looks in the OR typically. Okay. And OJ, you know, while we while we're kind of on the topic of flexible cystoscopy, I think another very easy to implement set of maneuvers when you're doing these cases in in the office, whether that's, you know, standard surveillance, initial diagnosis, or are relatively simple moves. And I may ask you, you know, from your perspective as, as well, what you do in our clinic, um, you know, of course they all get the uh, lidocaine jelly instilled. Then when I'm at the sphincter and about to go through the sphincter and the prostate, I'll ask the patients to take a deep breath, relax, act like they're urinating. And then I'll have the assistant actually squeeze the um, irrigant pad to kind of passively dilate the, the sphincter and the prostate as well. There's actually data that patients do better in terms of tolerating their, their office cystoscopies. And, and again, these are going to be super simple things to implement, you know, really trying to keep that, that lumen visualized actually as you're going through the prostate and not just kind of pass it in blindly as a catheter. Anything that you do at your end? So, yeah, so I, I do exactly that. Uh, I tell the patient to take a deep breath. So this patient, like it was like three months ago, this patient told me that his urologist started, I always tell him to cough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you heard that? So, so I, I started doing that to see, I didn't saw any difference, but, but it, but it was the first time that I have heard that people, have, cause this was a, a patient with just surveillance cystoscopy. He had bladder cancer. His urologist retired or I, th- or I think he moved, he just moved to Florida, but that's what he told me. He told me his urologist told him to, to cough. So I, I didn't know about that technique. I usually just, yeah, tell the, the nurse to, 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 to just push the back, uh, the patient take a deep breath. I use the, the lidocaine loop. But it was, I mean, I, I, I still, if the patient starts uh, complaining, I, I used to, to cough to see if that helps also, but I haven't yeah. had any, any, any changes for now. And, you know, extrapolating from prostate biopsy, if it's easily implementable, I think even playing some music, you know, everybody could pop in a Wi-Fi speaker, somebody's got their Spotify or YouTube, whatever, just pop on, you know, something relaxing that the patient may enjoy. These are very simple things that I think we can do to just make the whole experience a little bit more tolerable. So yeah, specifically, I mean, for vasectomies, definitely you need to, to put some, something for the patient to be more comfortable. I mean, usually cystoscopy is so fast that I don't think about that, but yeah, the, the more comfortable the patient is, the, the better. Yeah. And so, so, so Didi, let me ask you this. So let's say you're, you're there in the in the OR, the bladder tumor is located right in the ureter orifice, uh, right on top, not, not coming out from the orifice, but just right on top. What, what, what's the next step? Do you do a stent prior to the resection? What, what, what will you do? Yeah. So I will typically try to, you know, resect everything other than immediately over the UO. That's going to be my kind of last bit. And then I will try to take a rapid swipe using cut only. And if I visualize the mucosa of the intramural ureter and I see efflux of urine, then I'll typically not stent them. Okay. You know, so sometimes you start doing the resection and then you lose either the, either the angle to put something inside and then it, it gets more tricky. So, so what I'm doing, I'm putting at least something at open end there just to, to, to have visual visualization of that orifice. And then if I don't, if I see that, that it's not damaged, that everything is, is, is okay afterwards, I will just remove it. But I usually start putting an open end just because sometimes I have had difficult, difficulty putting the stand afterwards that I think, I mean, I don't know if they need it, but it's just not in the same 
location that the that the that once I started the procedure, it doesn't look the same. So in that sense, I I tried to, to I started to preventing do that and putting it like an open end just prior to everything. I think it's perfectly reasonable. Clearly, you know, once you've resected the UO, it's not always a foregone conclusion that you can yeah. find it. That can be stressful. And if you can't, you know, what I'll typically do is admit them overnight, monitor for symptoms, get ultrasound the next day. Yeah. And then oftentimes they're needing an integrated stent. And, you know, that that is an affair. And even if you do see it and you see it effluxing, it's not a it's not a guarantee that there couldn't be some post-procedural inflammation requiring adjunct procedure. I think what you're describing is perfectly reasonable. It's also you know, mandatory, obviously, that you resect the entirety of that tumor, which which can sometimes be a little bit trickier with the, either a stent or a wire or, you know, open-ended in place. But, you know, having your UO clearly demarcated is is never a bad thing, as I think any urologist would tell you. But, you know, to take this one step further, if they've got hydronephrosis and I'm worried about, it, you know, a muscle-invasive tumor and that they're going to be getting chemotherapy, I think there's actually decent data that, that, a nephrostomy too may be a better option than a stent in terms of, you know, mitigating upper tract occurrences as you move forward. I, I totally get it and respect it that patients would like to not have an external appliance. And, um, you know, if I can see the UO after a large resection, I still will often put a stent, but I, I certainly don't think there's any, any reason to feel ashamed if you ultimately wind up putting in a nephrostomy tube. Do you try, I mean, for those patients that you already know that they have hydronephrosis prior to the resection, do you go and st uh, put a nephrostomy first or would you just do your part and see if that alleviates the obstruction? Sometimes it's just like a valve effect that is not actually that, I mean, the tumor no, is not entering the, the, the UO. It's just the mass effect that is causing the obstruction. Once you, you remove it, you, you should be fine. But you, or you go straight into the nephrostomy first. Yeah, I'll, I'll typically, unless there's any evidence of renal dysfunction, would go in and do my resection first to see if I can unroof it, um, to see exactly like you said, if it's a ball valving effect or something along those lines. I, I think that, you know, outside of, of renal dysfunction or, of course, some type of uh, obstructive polynephritis situation, I would generally try to do my resection first. So I had this patient like two or three weeks ago, he, he, history of prostate cancer, he had radiation. So he comes with hematuria a bunch of blood clots. So I, when I went in, he had very small papillary lesions in the right lateral aspect of the, of the bladder. I tried dilating the urethra. I, I was, I, I went in just for the, with the 21 cystoscope just to take a look inside. I evacuated all the blood clots, but I couldn't get in these, the 20, we have our, our a hospital, we have a 27 and a 29 French. So I couldn't get in our sectoscope. So I, I ended up doing a bunch of cold cup biopsies. And then we debugged B just for grade the area, but it came out high grade. So now I'll probably have to go back in and do resection. So I'm trying to see if we can get a, a smaller resectoscope, a smaller French. What, what's your, your thoughts on that on patients that you cannot for either history or just bad strictures? What, what, what's the next step for those patients? Yeah, these, these are tough cases. These are challenging cases. And oftentimes, you know, we have to kind of work closely with your reconstructive urologist. I mean, another example is going to be patients that have uh, urinary sphincters in place. You want to make sure that you don't, um, you know, go in and cause more, more harm than good. First and foremost, you kind of got to do what you got to do, right? So you, sounds like you did exactly that. You got in there with the 20 French scope, established the tissue diagnosis, 
and, um, you know, did, did the best you could. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. Now the resectoscope, what we're able to kind of get it into the, to the level of the prostate, was it kind of a fixed prostate post-radiation or was this more of a meatus? Well, so you will see with that. Yeah. So I, I, I usually, I have the good wind sounds. So I put a wire inside and then I usually, I don't like to dilate blindly. So I use that one to dilate and I got up to a 24, but then it just got stuck. I mean, it, nothing was just going to rip the entire urethra very, very hard. So I would say I, I got into the penile urethra like two or three inches inside, but that was it. Yeah. So broadly, I've started kind of moving more away from sounds and more towards balloon dilation. Okay. And in this patient, we were able to get into the bladder. What I would probably do is sequentially use a four centimeter, 26 French, almost like a Nephromax balloon yeah. and just dilate stepwise all the way in. Start with that. Um, and, uh, you know, if that got you there, great. You know, it's, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion. I, you know, some of these patients post-radiation fixed prostates, I get nervous about, you know, using sounds to go in. I mean, I've, in our M&M conferences, you, you hear every year or so about somebody who had a perforation or you came in through the prostate, undermined the bladder. And, you know, if you don't have somebody who knows what they're doing, perfect amount of back tension on your wire, you know, things can get kind of out of hand. So I, I would try to dilate first. Then, you know, these are going to be extreme, extreme cases where, you know, if you've got diffuse kind of pendulous uh, bulbar urethral stricture disease, you're, you're even considering putting in a pair, you know, maturing a perineal urethrostomy because you can, so you can make sure you can access the bladder. If, if it's more at the level of the sphincter prostate bladder neck, that's obviously not going to be sufficient. I am very, very reluctant to, you know, put in a super pubic tube and access the bladder in a patient with active bladder cancer. But I, I would say that in, in these cases, you got to do the best you can. You get in there with a flexible or a rigid, you get your biopsies, you get your fulguration, you carefully characterize the, the bladder the size, the location, the, um, you know, is, is there any evidence of carcinoma in situ? Is it a nodular, sessile-based tumor? Is it diffuse? Because those are going to be the bits of information in addition to the pathology that are ultimately going to be kind of driving your decision. And, and this may absolutely play into how you ultimately manage a patient like this. If you've got a patient with terrible stricture disease, um, diffuse high-grade cancer, that might be, a, you know, somebody that's, that may be benefiting from more aggressive early intervention. Because, yeah, because you, you mentioned the, the perineal, just opening the perineal, going through there. But I mean, I, I never done that. I just read it. I, I have read it when I was in residency, but it's not something that I'm going to do on a Saturday morning and all in the hospital with, with no backup or right? something goes wrong. So, so yeah, but but I was able to, to just alleviate the, 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 the problem that he had. So I guess we'll, I'll take it from there and see if we can get next time. I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the balloon dilation. So that, that should be helpful. Sure. Sure. So let's continue talking about those weird cases or, or what if a patient, uh, you cannot control the bleeding, those big masses that you start doing resection and then you run into a problem that you cannot control the bleeding. Sometimes I have seen that if you just continue resection, Eventually will stop, but, let, but let's just say that there is a, a bad tumor, uh, you're, you're, you're running into a position and it continues bleeding. What's next? Yeah. So I think we've all kind of run into this in some form or fashion. So the first thing I would recommend for the larger tumors is, you know, really starting where it's easiest in terms of access and 
and visibility. You know, if you've got, say you've got a, a tumor kind of extending from trigone along the lateral aspects, I'll start immediately where I can see it. And what I'll actually do is, you know, some people kind of advocate for this haircut technique where you're just kind of mowing down, again, let's say from medial to lateral, and then working your way down to the base of the tumor. I personally don't like that. I like to start at one edge, take it down from the kind of papillary frondular aspects of it down to the base. I know where I've been. And if I run into the bleeding, bleeding some, you know, large dominant vessel, I at least know where it's coming from. Once I've gotten that down to, you know, somewhere that, that looks like it's, you know, close to the base of the bladder, then I start moving. So it's a systematic resection, you know, recognizing that, that I could get into bleeding, but I'm more likely to know where it's coming from. Now, even with that technique, I mean, trust me, I get it that in some of these big tumors, the orientation can be tri tricky. You know, the first things I would do are just uh, take a look at, you know, where my irrigation's hanging, you know, try to get it up a little bit, try to get some uh, better visualization. Take a look at the patient's blood pressure. You know, if they're in the 150s, 160s, work with my anesthesiologist, see if they can't drop that, you know, if this is some kind of large venous sinus, you don't want to resect blindly. If you're bleeding, you know, you, I don't think you want to resect blindly. The only thing that's going to work, be worse than, than a bleeding tumor is a bleeding tumor where you've perforated the bladder as well. So if you have a sense of kind of where you've been working, I think you try to resect down, get your irrigant up, try to really, you know, do the best you can. You can consider switching to a larger stethoscope. You started out with say like a 26 French or a 27, pop up to 28 or a 29, get a little bit better inflow outflow. If you've if you've kind of exhausted your your standard sets of maneuvers, you know, of course, you want to make sure the patient's stable. If if you're worried about it, um, you know, you want to make sure you have an active typing screen, cross match, all those kinds of things. But if you if you've done your level best, call for help. I mean, there's no there's no shame in it. This is a team sport. If you've got a partner that may be able to come in, have some different ideas, I would next get a roller bowl or, uh, you know, some type of cylinder and, and really just start focusing on cautery more than resecting. And if all of this is, is negative and, you know, it's just kind of like a, like a terp where, where you've done your resection, things are a little bit oozier than you like. I'd say you get in a large catheter, start your irrigation, observe them in the OR you know, put some traction on this and see if things clear up with, with brisk CBI. And, and many times these, these will settle themselves out, but uh, those would be my, my first set of maneuvers. And fortunately I haven't gotten in a situation where, you know, with these, I'm not able to kind of get a handle on things. Okay. Does IR play a role in this, like an embolization of the bladder, if, if, if that doesn't work? Yeah. So I think you, you really have to look at the whole kind of picture here. You know, if you're dealing with a nasty tumor that you know is going to be muscle invasive, the patient's anemic, i.e. a cystectomy is in the cards. I, I wouldn't do it at that setting, but I think, you know, you, you get through the acute phase, you start them on CBI, you get them resuscitated and you have a, and you have a conversation. But um, of course, you know, if you're, if you're running into to bleeding, that's not controllable. If you've got good support where you can have selective embolization of, you know, superior vesicle, inferior vesicle branches, that, that would be another option for sure. Did you, and have you ever had to open someone or, or I mean, or just uh, a perforation that, that you, hey, it's perforated, you see a, a, a bowel, have you run into that? And do you take any measures to prevent any spillage? 
Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to knock on wood here for in my own hands. I haven't uh, had a bladder perf, but twice over the course of my training have been involved. And, you know, these were very difficult tumors, large, thin, frail cases. And, and the first thing I say is, you know, one of the things that kind of pops up in our M&M is that if you're suspecting it all, it behooves you to rule out a diagnosis of a intraperitoneal bladder perf. You know, when you, when your anesthesia, when there's big mismatches in fluid, when your anesthesiologist is having a change in ventilating, you can't assume that you've had an extra pair of the old bladder furf and it's time to stop putting a catheter and, you know, get out. You've got to, you know, do what's right, which is to obtain a cystogram and, and sort it out. And, um, you know, at that point, if you do have an intraperitoneal bladder birth, the standard of care is typically going to be to do an exploration and repair it. And it's not fun. You're not prepared for it. The tissue planes are completely non-normal, you know, developing the space of Retzius isn't a foregone conclusion, but you, you've got to do it. And, um, you know, with that being said, it is morbid and depending on your comfort, depending on the comorbidities, you, there are options. You can pop in a laparoscope, take a look, you know, try to repair it minimally invasively. That can be, that can be a game changer. And clearly if you run anything like that, you're not going to be thinking about any type of intravesical therapy, but these are going to be cases where I think if they're muscle invasive, you really want to make sure you're, you're considering multimodal therapy. Shockingly, it's not a foregone conclusion that you're going to have a bunch of peritoneal implants, carcinomatosis, higher rates of metastases, but it's, it's not a good situation. It's, it's stressful for the family. It's stressful for the surgeon, of course, for the patient. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room. With that being said, I think this is again, case by case. If you have a super sick old patient, sometimes you got to do what's got to be done. Put in a catheter, put in a super tube, put in the frosty tubes, admit them antibiotics, monitor them carefully. I'm not advocating for that, but you know, I think it's important to establish the diagnosis, know what the standard of care is, but also refrain from being overly ultra dogmatic. Okay, Diri. So the next question, Diri. Do you use any, any biomarkers in your practice? I mean, for bladder cancer or on a regular basis? Yeah. So I would say largely because some of my partners have a fairly significant interest in, um, bladder cancer biomarker research, okay. but maybe kind of walking through them. So cytology would be the one that I think is consistently used by me, but we at our institution have reflex fish for atypical or suspicious cells. I personally think it's of limited added value. So if you've done a, you know, a clean cysto, some suspicious, some atypical cells and it's fish positive and they have recent upper tract imaging and their prostate looked fine. I'm not going to take them to the OR to do random bladder biopsies. I'm not going to take them to do prostate biopsies. I'm not going to act on that. I wouldn't necessarily do their next six. So in six months, but I would probably, you know, have a little bit higher concerned that something may pop up and I may be inclined to again, do office biopsies, but beyond that, not, not too much. Other common, common ones, bladder check and MP 22. I, I don't think that they have the real performance characteristics at this point for me to routinely use them. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I, I mean, we get a lot of reps in the office trying to sell this product. So, I mean, I used to use the cytology. 
And and I go with it. Yeah, and and I wouldn't. It's I guess it's a biomarker in a sense. I think there's a lot of exciting data coming through yeah. for MRI of the prostate, and uh, you know, there's actually a clinical trial in the UK, basically getting rid of cystos and uh, going straight to to management based on MRIs. We have bladder MRI here. Our experience is relatively early. I think the results are promising, but I wouldn't say that, you know, outside of the clinical trial, you should be making decisions whether to scope or not scope, give chemo, not give chemo, or really dictate your management at this point. Well, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, the, the cystoscope is a, a, a great tool that we have. And I don't see, I mean, I don't see an MRI changing that, or may, maybe it does, but... For now, also in terms of selling the patient, telling, hey, we need to do this. So let's see how, how that works. So lastly, uh, you mentioned UK. So there, there's a training in Europe to do more bladder sparing techniques. W what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it is a guideline directed option. Thus far, there's been a, a fairly significant kind of regionalization. You know, in the United States, it's it's largely been the group from MGH that's kind of done a lot of the lion's share of work in terms of bladder sparing. And what I would say is that, you know, a big part of bladder sparing is, is patient selection, making sure that you know what you're doing. You know, going back to some of our initial discussions, is the tumor completely resectable? Do they have extensive carcinoma in situ? to? Is there hydronephrosis? You know, these are going to be relative contraindications. On the flip side, I think this idea among urologists that bladder sparing is uniformly less effective is, is wrong. You know, there's, there's never been a randomized controlled trial. There was a spare trial in the UK, which closed due to poor accrual. But I really do think that, um, you know, it behooves us to have that conversation with our patients about, you know, you've got newly diagnosed muscle invasive bladder cancer, here are your options. And, and that doesn't mean cystectomy with or without chemotherapy. That means cystectomy with or without chemotherapy as well as bladder sparing techniques. It's absolutely mandatory that you have a good working relationship with your radiation oncologist and medical oncologist. These are intensive regimens with radiosensitizing chemotherapy along with radiation. Oftentimes, same day, the patients have to be motivated. And, uh, you know, I think you, us as urologists need to be somewhat familiar with the data in terms of local control bladder intact control and then and then distant control i again i think it's it's really incumbent upon us to have that discussion and you know fast forward 10 years i would say that i see bladder cancer management more like prostate cancer where you have an honest discussion about you know broad stroke surgery versus radiation more options okay and will you go will you do bladder, neck biopsy, other biopsies of, of other areas in the bladder to make decisions? Do you usually do this in your practice or? Typically not. I mean, random bladder biopsies, prostate urethral biopsies, upper tract ureteroscopy, selective cytology, et cetera. Those are generally going to be in kind of unique cases of completely clean bladders, positive cytologies. And I would say that that clinical scenario is less common as, um, as we implement blue light systems. But I mean, in a patient that you're considering a, a bladder sparing technique, for example, we do a random bladder biopsy of other areas that don't have tumor just to have more information and tell, Hey, we can do this. We cannot do this. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if I'm considering it, they're typically going to get a blue light resection. I'm going to be going for maximal resection. I feel pretty good that I've had good visualization. So, you know, in terms of, again, the prostatic urethra, non-suspicious lesions, I, I probably wouldn't. But if there's anything even remotely suspicious, they could do it. You put it to, to rest. And um, I would actually put a fiducial in if we're electing for a chemo radiation type of approach. Okay. Well, Didi, I guess that's it for now. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, it's been great. No, I really appreciate you all having me. And um, I think, you know, like you mentioned when we were talking before, you know, guideline directed care is, is rather easy, but by all means, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to somebody who does this a little bit more if it's outside of your comfort zone. And, um, you know, I, I, again, would say implementation of office cysto biopsies can be a, uh, a real benefit to patients in terms of saving them from unnecessary anesthetic cystoscopies. And, uh, you know, I know we didn't really touch on to this, but, you know, as an office-based procedure, it can be a decent option for the urologist as well. Good, good. So I know you're, you're very passionate about testicular cancer. I know you do research on that. So hopefully in upcoming sessions, we can talk about that. So, so I'll be interested to have that take on uh, your thoughts on that, and, and that was the future on testicular cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely, OJ. Happy to do it. Uh, I may have to pencil out a few hours. I enjoy talking about testis cancer, so we'll, <laughs> we'll get that one and taken care of next time. Okay, Didi. Well, thanks very much. Take care, man. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it.